Hi, and welcome to Real Trail Talk. I am Donovan D'Souza from The Long Ways Better. And I'm Mark Pybus from The Life of Pi. Welcome to episode 66. It is my great pleasure to introduce Alan D'Souza, father of Donovan. <laughs> yeah, we've got him in not just because he is my dad, um, but he's a risk expert. So we've got him in to talk about today's episode because he's probably the right person for this. Thank you very much for the welcome. So I'm going to enjoy this quite a bit, but we'll get onto the topic at hand, which is risk. So Alan, do you just want to run us through risk as a concept and also like public perceptions and technical definitions of risk? Sure. So risk uh, by definition is the effect of uncertainty on your objectives. So a lot of it depends on what your objectives are. So if an individual, your objectives in walking might be to climb up a mountain to have a nice uh, look at a view, enjoy the trail along the way, uh, whereas the state government or federal government um, looking after the parks in which you walk, they'd be uh, managing the risk of providing the facilities along the way and perhaps looking after the safety risks and how much it costs and how much their reputation might be impacted. So there's a lot of aspects of risk. But I guess in this context that we're talking about, we are looking at uh, risk with walking. So what an individual can do, um, what what um, organizations like the, uh, the departments can do in terms of providing the infrastructure uh, or just encouraging people to walk. Cool. I guess there's different public perceptions of what government's role is in this and where the line is. When people talk about what they want on a trail... It, you could be like the completely safe trail where everything's all, you know, paved roads. It's all fenced off or maybe it's in like a glass box or something so you just can't get injured. And then there's the extreme end where people just want no development whatsoever. Um, and I guess it's a sliding scale where the individual fits sure. to where government will say this is the right level that we want to take. Sure. And, and you know, not just governments, but um, also uh, private organizations in, uh, in between as well and, and what they provide. But it's not just about the, the safety aspects, the safety risks, but um, if you think about encouraging people to use that, you know, uh, are you getting the, the, the benefits of people uh, exercising more, getting out more? We are in a society where there's, there's a lot of obesity, so... I'm just touching on some of the benefits as well uh, as the risk. Uh, but coming back to your question about the, the safety aspects of it, yes, that's foremost on government's mind. Uh, they, they don't want to be in the news creating uh, a situation where people hurt themselves or, or they've not done everything they can to prevent somebody from either hurting themselves or, or dying. So... That's uh, a dilemma that they're faced with, in, in my opinion, and managing risk from the perspective of a government agency and how the, the public can be impacted. Mm. So these are key things which you know, we as the community, as citizens, um, empower the government to do on our behalf. Uh, sometimes we abrogate that responsibility, but it is everybody's responsibility to manage their own risk and obviously the people that we we have voted into power, it is their responsibility to make sure that they do the right thing by us. 
So from a, as I say, a parks and wildlife perspective, um, they have to weigh up many, many factors, as you say. Now, what's the process from a government point of view in determining what is an acceptable level of risk for the public? Going into all those factors of costs and lives and um, management as well. Generally, I, I would have to say that governments would be very reluctant to have a risk of death. So that's something that uh, you will probably find uh, as a policy statement, is that we conduct our activities uh, with the aim to have zero death. Now, is that achievable? You just have to look at the, the, the mining industry to, to know that uh, it is an aspiration. Uh, it's certainly something that we should try to achieve, but it's not always achievable. So there are uh, what can be termed as inherent risks in, in the things that we do. Uh, it is inherently dangerous um, in some mining activities, in some real activities, even uh, the activities that is undertaken around housing construction. You know, climbing on top of a roof, fixing a roof. Molly Meldrum has fallen off a roof. <laughs> uh, so there are uh, risks that are uh, inherent in these activities, as well as the uh, inherent risks of standing too close to the edge of Bluff Knoll, for example. Mm. So I guess that's, that's something that I guess I wanted to talk about was that, you know, I think hiking is an activity that has an inherent risk and there's a certain types of hikes, particularly, I guess, at the higher end of the scale of difficulty, where probably in order to do that, there is, uh, you know, there is a risk of death and there are certain walks like Federation Peak in Tasmania where in a 10-year period, you're likely to have a death. Uh, it's not a managed trail, but it is... You know, it's something where government could go, oh, we're going to not allow people to do it. But in Tasmania, it is allowed, but it's done in a way that's very much like, it's up to you. We're not talking about it. We're not publicizing it, but it is something that people do do. That's interesting because um, obviously there's, that's Tasmania. Um, do we have the same, and I'm going to use a term here, risk appetite for that? So does the government of Western Australia have a similar risk appetite of trails that may be a little bit more inherently dangerous than others or are the states sort of aligned in terms of the level of risk i think the states are quite different i think wa is probably quite risk averse would you say in some places yes um in other places no um for in terms of bluff knoll and the sterling range if we're going to talk about them is i think they can do to a certain level what they can to say hey here are the risks um it's now up to the the personal responsible but then if you're looking at the sterling ridge walk they discourage people from using that whereas if they stepped in and said hang on we'll improve the facilities a little bit they're taking a bit of that risk out yeah um so i think the the amount of people that are interested in like a sterling ridge walk is quite high but the government doesn't cater to that risk appetite in wa i wouldn't Mm. So compared to other states, at least. So, because yeah. I think uh, like a the a converse sort of example would be in Queensland in the Glasshouse Mountains. They have a lot of walks that are quite potentially dangerous. People have died, and they don't promote them as walk walks, but they they promote them more as like adventure activities, mm -hmm. and they make the information available to the public and so that people can make their own decisions. Whereas I think there as mark says like stilling ridge is much more like not encouraged and talked about yeah 
And, and that probably brings us back to a key point uh, about risk and risk awareness. So the rise in, in use of risk management uh, ties in with wanting to know how to manage these things, uh, whether or not it's uh, uh, preventing someone from dying, preventing a company from losing uh, its customers um, through loss of reputation, that sort of thing. It's, it's very important for us to decide as individuals and as organizations what we intend to, and I keep coming back to this, the, the objectives are. So if a, if, um, a government or, or an agency wants to encourage people to undertake more ex- outdoor activities in the form of walks, then they should assess the, the risks in you know, the Sterling Walk or whatever other walk there is uh, to ensure that they are, A, aware of the risk and can manage it. And, and managing it, sometimes people refer to this as mitigation. So how do you mitigate the risk with that? Do you have a constructed uh, trail and, and, and railings all the way up to, to the top of Bluff Knoll? Um, how does that impact on your other risk of aesthetics, of um, ensuring that uh, the people who actually want to go and experience nature, experience nature without railings? Mm. I think we've certainly got it better than, say, like some places in the Blue Mountains where you get to a nice lookout or a rock and it's just this ugly chainmail fence. It kind of ruins the views a, a little bit. Mm. I'm happy they haven't done that on Bluff Knoll when they redid the trail. Yeah, so th- so those objectives of the attractiveness of the of the place have to be balanced by the, the agency or the government. And, and they would be looking at all of the different categories of risk and, and how they impact as a whole. Uh, and then making the determination, yes, we might be cynical in, in thinking that uh, they might also not have walking trails or not encourage walking trails in certain areas because that's a, an opportunity to cut costs. Uh, you know, having less ranges uh, available, have less signage. But it's important, in my opinion, to provide that information and signage to people so that they can make those individual decisions, mm. um, which they may not be able to otherwise. Mm. Now, you mentioned it um, before we got on the air mm. uh, about the trail, walking trail standard. Mm. Um, I, I realize it's not um, been updated in tw- 2018 when, when it was due for an update, but let's just assume that it's still relevant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there are five, you say five uh, walking levels? Five standards in the... So the old standard used to be six, but in the uh, current Australian uh, walking track standards, it's five, and they've combined six and five. Yeah, I, I think that might relate to New South Wales who assessed it as, look, five and six is pretty much the same, but the, I think the standard does, does say six. Mm. Um, nevertheless... Those those standards themselves, while providing some information, um, have some conflicting information as well. Yeah, I think that so the the standard from the government point of view when they're they're assessing the trail, I think it's pretty good. Like they're on the ball in terms of of they go okay, so these are the things that would be so that it could be the length, it could be the type of terrain, the kind of um, how like well made the trail is. Uh, those things are the uh, things that govern the standard but sometimes the blurb that they have at the trailhead and i think wa is pretty good at putting signs at the start of trailheads um 
but sometimes it's just a very general these are the things that may like they basically just give this the blurb of what a class 4 trail might be but they don't always break it down into why it is so for example they might have a 40k walk like the railway reserves heritage trail that's flat and easy or a walk that's quite challenging in terms of terrain and that's both class 4 for different reasons but it just says class 4 and doesn't doesn't break it down enough sometimes yeah okay i, I haven't seen this in uh, sufficient detail to to provide comment with regards to risk it it does seem more like a capability assessment mm. uh, which is important in terms of a, pe- a person assessing whether or not they are able or capable um, to undertake the, the activity. Risk itself is probably a little bit more specific in terms of what are the hazards that are on that particular trail or that particular section of the trail. Um, how can I um, overcome these hazards? You know, you can maybe not undertake that section itself. You can go around it. Um, so there's, there's, there's lots of opportunities to apply risk management in terms of how the individual assesses this, but you can, as, as you mentioned, mitigate uh, your risk or introduce controls, as we say in, in, in risk uh, parlance, uh, of carrying a personal beacon, personal locator beacon, uh, which if you do get lost or if you do uh, get into trouble, you can activate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think WA is fairly good in um, providing additional information. So Frenchman's Peak down in Cape Legrand, the class five walk, um, but then there's a little caption saying, if it's wet or windy, do not attempt this walk right. because it is up bare granite and gets yeah. quite slippery. So and I think we're well catered for, especially in national parks where they do have the budget for signage. I think the the risk area signs, which sometimes we laugh at, are probably pretty good. Yeah, because like... we have like a running count um, within our little chat group of all the different ones. There's like beach risk, cliff risk. Coastal risk. Coastal B- risk. B risk. Tide, yeah, tidal risk, everything. <laughs> And I guess it's comical, but you're probably... He's probably uh, from the risk that. guy, I said, <laughs> totally valid. <laughs> um, and I guess kind of WA now has the, the beach identification numbers mm-hmm. um, for most of the major beaches. So if you get caught in a rip or you're lost or whatever, you have that number that you can reference right. um, if you want to rescue or um, want the authorities to know where you are. Well, all so, that probably brings us, that's a good segue into bringing us to another activity that's that's risky in terms of, you know, surfing or, or getting into the ocean where there's lots of sharks as well. Mm. So there are inherent risks with that. Um, individuals should be given the information as to the shark activity, shark sightings and, and all of the other things that they can make the, those decisions. So it really is no different from jumping into the, uh, the ocean mm. or setting off on a, on a walk in terms of assessing that risk and deciding for yourself, is that within my risk appetite? Yes or no? Mm. I guess, I mean, in terms of that, something that I, I guess, probably have a bit of a bee in my bonnet over is, um, and I, I've, I've said it too many times, but um, is that Bald Head in Albany is a fantastic walk, probably one of the best walks in the whole state. And it's not in on Trails WA's top trails list. And that was because the, the local Parks and Wildlife Office said, oh, it's, it's too risky. Um, I guess the question I have there is, if there are signs, like they have the, the class of the trail at the, at the trailhead, they have coastal risk area signs 
on a lot of it. They could have erosion risk signs in the areas that are eroded because their complaint was that it's too it's too eroded and not in good nick. I guess the question there is if that's something where they have dealt with those sort of aspects, like they've got the risk area signs, they've given people the advice. What's you know what's holding back you know that from being that's that's a valid question and and you know if if you haven't yet asked them maybe you could ask the 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 right people for those responses um it's it's not about putting somebody in in the spot uh but getting that information so that you you can yourself decide whether or not uh, it is within your risk appetite um not knowing what reasons they they have for making those decisions, I obviously can't comment on that. Mm. Um, you would hope that they would have uh, rational reasons why uh, that is so. Uh, but if it's one of those issues that you pointed out in terms of is it coastal erosion or or uh, they compl- so someone said to me that the the reason was because it wasn't in good nick because there's some parts of the trail that have become eroded over time right um but really they i don't think they're insurmountable problems sure um particularly because you're short yeah (laughs) some of the drops are like a meter or longer i'm not tall i can deal with it (laughs) yeah so it does sound unreasonable and you know those sorts of uh, questions should be asked uh, as to why and if if the walking community were to get behind you and ask you ask for those answers, then they, they should be provided with those answers. Mm. In terms of governments and uh, agencies, a lot depends on what the community or society accepts mm. as the reasonable uh, level of service or provision uh, that determines what you're, you're going to get. You know, that, that sort of sets the, the policy agenda. So if the policy voices out there don't get behind those questions, then you know it, it's probably going to continue. Mm. So those are the sorts of things that you walkers out there should should um, <laughs> take account of and um, voice or ask those questions. Mm. I mean, the government can stick up a hundred different signs, and people will still ignore them. Um, kind of a, a topic that will lead on to the next little section is as kids should we be taught more about risk um, and how it relates to everyday activities rather than just you know you go swim with sharks you're gonna maybe get eaten should that be introduced earlier into school systems and curriculum uh, that's a good question I, it, it probably will be because risk as a field of study itself um, has really come of age over the last decade or so um, the the big thing with risk management coming to importance was the global financial uh, crisis, GFC, where a lot of people said, "Hang on, why why didn't we see this coming? You know, why did we not see that all of these conditions was going to create such a uh, such a, a, a catastrophic loss to so many people?" Mm-hmm. So since then, what um, has been uh, driven is the study of risk and how we can provide better governance to not just companies, but also to uh, government agencies and anybody in, in uh, a governance position. So I would hope that uh, that would extend to probably first um, high school and then maybe into into primary as well. You'll, mm-hmm. you'll find risk coming more into um, the vernacular um, 
quite quite often now. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I guess in terms of other risks that there are, there's other things like you, you know you, you said it's not just safety. There are things like uh, environmental risk and um, cost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so some of the, the the common risks are obviously you mentioned safety. Uh, safety and the environment are normally top of the priority because they, we do have quite strong regulation in terms of in, in ensuring that, that um, individuals are kept safe, particularly in the, you know, obviously in, in work safety uh, and similarly in the environment as well, in protecting the environment. So you also have uh, financial risk, which I mentioned. Reputation risk uh, for the government is, is also very important because if an incident occurs that will impact on their reputation, They'll, they'll want to safeguard that. Um, all of these reasons, you know, why governments would be risk-averse or, sh- or should be risk-averse. Then there's also um, some of the other common categories are compliance, legal and compliance. So is somebody going to sue me because I didn't have the right signage at the right place mm. or it fell off and nobody nobody replaced it? Mm. Uh, compliance issues in terms of, you know, is uh, am I going to be taken to... Uh, to task by the courts or the police. So these are the main categories of risk. Um, and holistically, the government would be, or government agency would be looking at all of these different categories mm. and assessing it in terms of what is the consequence if someone does fall off the, the edge of Lafnol, uh, which could be you know, serious injury or death. So you get a really high consequence. Normally, the common rating is, say, a five, um, a, a number of five on a scale of one to five, mm. five being catastrophic. Um, and then they'll also look at the likelihood. So how likely is this, to happen, is this to happen? So this perhaps could explain why some areas are not um, advertised or encouraged for people to go. Mm. Because if less people go there, then the likelihood of the event... Um, is less likely to occur. Right, yeah. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah definitely. Um, and moving on to personal risk, like we've talked a lot about the government and how, what they can do to mitigate risk, but I mean, in the end, a lot of it comes down to personal awareness of the risks that you're taking in order to get to the top of a mountain or go fishing or whatever. Um, do you see that people are becoming maybe more risk averse, um, seeing other people do like extreme activities with social media and everything, or is it in response to the signage that is out there or the, the education that they're receiving? I think it's probably both, and that's the beauty of us being individuals. We all can make our individual choice, and some people um, in these extraordinary times of COVID-19 uh, I'm probably a little bit more um, sensitive mm. to the, the dangers to their health. In one individual, it might mean that they uh, also want to minimize their safety risk when they're making these decisions, whether that's correlated. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. So maybe, maybe they might. But on the other hand, you know, if you lock down people for too long, it seems like they want to go stir crazy and go out as soon as they can mm-hmm. um, and maybe undertake more risky activities. Um, at any rate, the the individual choice, I agree, should be carefully thought out. 
you should stop and make that assessment. I'm reminded of Glenn Jakovic for some reason. I'm I'm a really old guy, so <laughs> where stop, assess, take, you know, assess oh, the yeah, risk, yeah, I make uh, the changes, and make the changes, yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this uh, coming from a safety background, uh, sorry, but that's that's the sort of thing that that you do remember, and maybe people should remember that when you know before they get too close to the edge of Bluff Knoll or too close to the edge of a, of a cliff with, with erosion. Mm. I think they need to bring those ads back. I'll see if we can find it and we'll post it on yeah. <laughs> social media. I remember Think Safe, Sam. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, hiking, it doesn't seem like it, it has a lot of risk because you're just walking. But in matter of fact, there's, like, there's a lot of risk when you break it down, especially like in WA where you've got hiking in summer has its own risks with heat and dehydration bushfires then you're climbing up mountains you're on the coast it could be king waves like there's mm. a lot of risks that people need to think about and i i think that most like casual hikers don't really like it doesn't sink into them yeah. a whole lot um which is why like you see people trying to climb up les Murdy falls and there's a helicopter out trying to rescue them i think you know a lot of it comes down to the individual mm. um i guess making- that ties into my thoughts regarding the fact that we have the walk track grading system yes. that should be basically be able to give people a sense of their abilities. But as you say, like people just think of walking as walking and it's not, um, you know, in mountain bikes, if you look at some of the black diamond trails, mm. you look, I look at that and I go, there's no way I'm doing that. I will get injured if I do that. But yet there's not that same thing with hiking because sometimes people, I think, just think, oh, it's just walking, but it's not just walking. Yeah, I think that's because you're going so much slower, you don't think about it. Whereas mm. mountain bikes, you people, you put them, them on a mountain bike, they're like, well, I'm going to go fast now. And some people, you're going 15 kilometers an hour and they're wobbling everywhere and they're not sure. It's that confidence that you have to um, earn within yourself. Mm. Whereas hiking... Yeah, it's just it's just walking, <laughs> as some people say. But but as you guys said, you know, there's a whole spectrum of of uh, walking trails and the the I guess difficulties levels as well. So that's the sort of thing I agree. We 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 as individuals should be looking at: um, is this level within my capability? What are the specific risks that are involved with this? You know, and and yes, please look at the safety risks first. Um, those coastal risks, the, the erosion risks, um, the edge of the cliff risks, um, all of these things should be considered. And if you decide that it is within your risk appetite, by all means, but at, at least you've made that, de- that determination or the, the consideration and determination yourself. Mm-hmm. So I guess another topic that this kind of ties into is sort of ultralight hiking, where basically the ideal... Yeah, the ideal is the impossible goal of carrying nothing and you want to get as close to that as possible. So that that's sort of the where that sort of ideal is and it's and you know, like it'd be like, oh you you'll drill holes into your toothbrush to make it lighter. Um and then at the extreme end of that, like some people refer to it as stupid light where people make decisions. Um you know, I think I wouldn't call someone who doesn't bring like bring a PLB with them a stupid like hiker, but I would always bring it a PLB with me and I've assessed that that's something that's essential to carry, especially when there's no phone reception. I guess the stupid light is when, you know, for example, 
you might be fine to just carry a small amount of water but if you're in a desert area where, where it's a long time between those that's where the stupid light area is I, I, from experience you can know like if you know the area but I guess these are things that people make decisions about without maybe knowing per se how, yeah. how, do, how does one make these assessments um I think that's probably a, uh, an important point you're making about uh, experience because quite often we find that uh, the people who dig, do get into trouble uh, unfamiliar with the area or have, have um, uh, completely unprepared. Quite often they are tourists. You know, you, you hear of tourists getting swept off uh, rocks because they're not familiar with the area or um, having ventured off for a walk without the necessary water uh, requirements or, or or gear that they need. So if you look at the ultralight in the way you've described, it sounds like it is uh, a conscious decision to try to carry as little as you can. And if you can, fine. But have you made the, the risk assessment of all of the things that you're not bringing, which you might need? So all of the things that we in in the risk space would refer to as controls. So do you have you worked out the, the amount of water that you need? Are you carrying any um, contingencies? That's another probably important area that, that people need to think of. You know, you might say, I'm going to go for an hour, but you might get lost and end up being there for five hours. So is there a contingency amount of water is there a contingency of the shoes that you're wearing that can take the unfamiliar terrain or the terrain that you weren't planning on Mm. Mm -hmm. i guess it's kind of like a a nice parallel or metaphor so like a, a formula one car it's designed to go for the exact amount for the race so it's fueled to the end yes Compare that with like a normal passenger vehicle you're going to work, that car's going to last forever and it's got built-in yeah. capabilities. And I'm sure ultralight walkers consider themselves, of, you know, in, in, in that sense as well. <laughs> yeah. in terms of, yeah. um, Formula one-ing this. Yeah. Uh, but yes, um, please, for your own safety, for for um, make the, the necessary assessments so that you can re- remain safe. Because there is some some people say somewhat arrogantly that um, you're packing for your fears is what they say, but I think that there's a certain intelligence in sometimes packing for quite realistically possible scenarios. Yes, there's mm-hmm. like you know carrying things that are never going to happen or very unlikely to happen. Sure. Yes. But you know, appeal me. What does that weigh? Like a few hundred grams. Yeah. What what's that really going to make a difference to your hiking? You yeah, know? And, and maybe yes, maybe forego the other things, but carry the PLB. Mm. Mm. So at least in in the emergency situation, you do have. That's probably uh, a good segue into emergency plans. So another uh, aspect of risk is informing your emergency plan. So what is your emergency plan in the event of? You mm. know, and this is where. Um, risk is meant to walk you through all of the different scenarios of 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 emergencies so running out of water you know um falling down the um the side of a cliff injuring yourself bleeding out all of those things you know the do the ultralight walkers decide to carry a first aid kit or do they forego that 
uh, and then run the risk of not being able to to um, treat themselves should they injure themselves. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess. I mean, as as a long distance hiker, like I'm always thinking, right? If I like sprain my ankle or I break my ankle or my leg or something, how am I going to get out of this situation? Especially as a solo hiker, like it's good to always be thinking in the back of your mind, what if this happens? I can do this and having maps technology with you like a plb it's it's yeah. good to mitigate the risk and mm. have a plan to get out if something and, does happen and the mitigation of the risk might be going in in uh, larger numbers so instead of going alone having two or three or more people mm. so at least you know one can stay with the individual another one can can walk somewhere with, to get help those sorts of um, scenarios should be thought of and risk assessed mm. And certainly with Medikit, I've sort of added to the Medikit from cycling because I'm a very experienced hiker, but not as an experienced a bike packer. And so I've learned from that that there were certain things that I've needed because I've crashed so many times <laughs> and you bleed so much more <laughs> as a cyclist <laughs> that the Medikit has changed because there's things that... And this is from experience, whereas I think um, there are things that I wouldn't bring now because I know... I don't need those because they have more things for hiking. Like, for example, um, um, band-aids instead of massive bandages and gauze. Yeah, and I wouldn't bother with things for, like, blisters. Mm. Not that I've had blisters for years, but, um, you know, I always have something like that just in case. But for cycling, the biggest thing is I've needed massive gauze from having, you know, big gashes because I've crashed my bike. And this is another important thing because, you know, a risk doesn't have to be or shouldn't be a once-off um, activity. You should keep assessing your risks. And when you get more experience and you know what controls or, you know, uh, other things you should be carrying, uh, it does inform you better and you know what to do and what not to do for the next time. Mm. I mean, you've done that with the pea gravel is... You see pea gravel and you go slower now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I assess that and go, do I really need to get there so soon? No, I don't. I'd rather not crash my bike. Yeah. Um, and another good tip if you are going out in groups is to always let people know where in your pack, say a PLB or a Medikit is. Because a lot of the time, like if you get bitten by a snake, you may be rummaging around someone's pack for minutes trying to find the snake bite kit. And that could be precious time to wrap it up and um or even just call out for for emergency help yeah or you've just now hit on another uh, safety activity from safety guy <laughs> so make sure if you are in a group that you have a safety brief before you actually head off <laughs> stating things like this <laughs> yeah, oh, what guys. we call a pre-start yeah <laughs> picturing the guys up on the mine site and everyone feverishly listening to the the safety brief it works. <laughs> so you've said to me that the opposite of risk is opportunity. And do you kind of want to talk about what that means? Sure. Yeah. So risk is uh, often seen negatively in terms of what are the things that can go wrong. And, you know, by definition, we, we did say what are the uncertainties that can uh, impact on your objectives. And your objectives are obviously to complete your walk safely, uh, enjoy the walk while you're doing it, and uh, come out the other end in one piece. Mm. So the, uh, the 
upside of risk is that it also provides us with information. So information that you have thought about methodically and assess as, yes, as an ultralight worker, walker, sorry. Well, these are all the things that I definitely want to bring with me. Uh, maybe foregoing some other stuff, but definitely the PLB, as we had discussed. Uh, but I can then enjoy the walk because I know that I've, I have peace of mind in terms of my safety. And if you're traveling in a group, the safety of others as well, because obviously you want to not just look after number one, but also your friends or relatives who are coming along enjoying the walk with you. Mm -hmm. So I guess that comes down to a lot of people, when they're, especially when they're first starting out in activity, get quite anxious about what to, what's out there and kind of what are the, the dangers and the risks. And mm -hmm. having that experience, like you can look at somewhere and go, oh, yeah, I've been in a similar situation before. You're not worrying all the time and you can enjoy um, your experience because you've been and seen those risks and evaluated that they're not that, that bad. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, and get as much information as you can from blogs or from, um, you know, um, other information uh, that you might find online uh, or information from uh, government websites or um, the, the agencies that are responsible for, for providing you with that information. So get as much information as you can before that so you are informed. And then you can make those risk assessments and and decide for yourself. Mm. It's it's the the key thing with risk is that it helps you with your decision making. All right, we get to the fun bit now. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Mark had some other questions that were unrelated to oh. risk, uh, but he didn't want to tell me what they were. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, not that risk isn't a very important topic and interesting topic as well. But while we have Donovan's father here. <laughs> Can we discuss um, what we have termed as, and Donovan calls himself Little Donny, right? From when he was a kid. Uh, can you tell us any like fun or interesting stories about what Don was like growing up, and maybe if you can recall that trip to the Gloucester Tree when assess, you saw assess the risk here. <laughs> <laughs> when he saw the Billman track sign, he thought I wanted to do that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, the Gloucester Tree uh, facades. I, um, even though I was a, a pilot in the Air Force uh, many, many, many years ago, I was afraid of heights. So I assessed the risk as, am I crazy? Am I going to go up there? Uh, but Donnie, little Donnie, uh, uh, who was uh, very young then, uh, how old were you then, Don? First time would have been like 12, I think. Okay, yeah. so, um, you know, uh, not quite a teenager yet. And he was determined to uh, to climb this tree. And um, I thought, well, as a parent, I will assess the risk and go with him so that he's not on his own. And should anything happen, uh, I, as the adult, would be there for him. Yeah, I didn't. I was in a similar situation a few weeks ago, and he wanted to climb the Gloucester Tree. I said, "You go for it. <laughs> I'll stay with the bikes." <laughs> well, he is an adult now. So. Yeah. And I tell you what, you know, it gets scarier every time. Yeah. Like when I was twelve, it was nothing. Right. But now I find it 
every time I've done it, I found it more scary than the last time. Right. Yeah. Okay. I I guess I'll have to go again <laughs> <laughs> at my ripe old age. <laughs> yeah. What was he like as a kid? Was he always this stubborn and um, set in his ways? <laughs> Very determined, as his mother would say. Okay. That's probably a better use so for. he um yeah uh, he would be very adventurous so whenever we um even within uh, our neighborhood whenever there were other kids he would want to do uh, something a little bit different so instead of walking at, in the park he would want to climb up the side of the a hill on the side of the, the park and uh, not just wander along the path as as the other kids would do so and for him it was always the long way is better. <laughs> his his best friend, um, poor Justin, uh, suffered for many years from going the long way is better because Donovan wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah, we've heard about these adventures where he's just like, I'm just going to walk from Kuji to Mundaring and see how far it is. <laughs> or along the train line. <laughs> yeah, Because yep. he did that. Was it Mandra or Rockingham up to Joondalup? Yeah, so it was Mandra all the way. So I walked the whole Mandra line and then after the up. See, talking about risk, I would have thought the risk of boredom would have been quite high there. Those were the days when I was not driven by the aesthetics. It was more like how many kilometres could you do? Okay. Yeah, yeah it's, it's probably more uh, what is it that I can push myself to achieve and, and do it. Um, so his mother and I just resign ourselves to having a very strange son. <laughs> And like your my, my my grandmother, I can't believe that I'm always going hiking or cycling. And she's like, it's so dangerous. And yeah. you guys are really blasé about it. We 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 are because we, we you know we we've we've assessed the risk ourselves and the risk of you know losing our, our uh, only child. <laughs> um, uh, hope it doesn't happen. Uh, but we we've now chosen not to tell his grandmother because she just worries too much. That's a good idea. Did mm. you get to a certain point, or was it too late when you saw him going and being all adventurous and thinking, "Do we need a backup here?" <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> because we have Alyssa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very much less uh, or more risk averse than Donovan. <laughs> I think you balance each other out quite well. Yeah. No, but we uh, we obviously are very encouraged by the fact that um, he would be rational in making those decisions and he would uh, risk assess this before actually venturing out. Who does. You're very thorough in your preparation. So it's not mm. you're out on crazy adventures. You do your homework beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. I don't think we'll ever get my dad on the podcast, so there's no payback for me. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Alan, for coming no in. It's been my a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Yep, thanks, Dad. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any other episode of Real Trail Talk, then please rate us on whatever platform you're currently listening to us on. Ratings really help for us to reach an audience and for people who maybe are looking to learn about the outdoors in Western Australia and Australia in general. If you had any questions or any suggestions for future episodes, uh, you can email us at realtrailtalk at gmail.com or you can contact us through our social media channels. Thank you for listening and we'll be back in two weeks.